This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. Last time we touched on brain science and technology more as a primer on the field. With this episode, we look at the brain as a 20th century battlescape. I kind of like that term. You've spoken about brain science, like any other sciences, principally about achieving the good or good ends. But you also noted that there are such definitions of good that are relative, especially to cultures or different countries. So aside from the narrow application of clinical medicine, how might these differing ideas of good leverage the capabilities of brain science? Uh, simply put, Michael, show me a group. It's a group of individuals, a collective or a nation that goes off to war, either offensively or defensively, and does that under the consideration that what they're doing is wrong. They don't. What history shows us is that when, when nations become bellicose, when groups become bellicose, characteristically what they're looking to do is to advance their ideology, their politics, their way of life, or in some way defend what against what they perceive to be realistic threats to those ideologies, borders, geographies, ways of life, and resources. So the advancement and sustainment of a group's relative good provides, if you will, the kernel of motivation for agendas of defense, intelligence, security, and aggression. I think it can also be the basis for discourse, but uh, very often that discourse breaks down and violence and volatility results. Now, are you telling me that this area of research is in fact going to be weaponized? I think you just said that no one really goes to war for evil purposes, at least in their brains. It's all good. Right. So we have to consider what is a weapon. The Oxford Dictionary, for example, defines a weapon as means of contending against others, not necessarily bellicose. And, you know, we use it that way colloquially. In other words, oh, your sense of humor is a weapon. Yeah, but what are we really doing there? We're contending against others in ways that decrease the potential threat or real threat that those others may pose us and our kin and our kith, as well as our ideals, ideologies, ways of life, resources, etc., and what we see with the brain sciences is they become more and more capable to be utilized in these ways. We recognize the brain as a target, I mean, crude ways, a headshot, for example, clocking somebody over the head with an axe or a broadsword. Well, that's going to put them out of action. But the increasing sophistication to be able to assess the brain and to affect the brain gives, I think, profound dimensions into way that we can use the brain in cognitive sciences, not only in kinetic ways, but also in non-kinetic ways, in ways that affect individuals' ecologies, economies, emotions, psychologies, and clearly that has use for intelligence and for diplomatic relations as well. So I used to talk about winning hearts and minds. What you're talking about is using brain science to win hearts by affecting the mind, right? That's exactly correct. I mean, realistically, you know, it's it's sort of when you have them by the brains, their hearts and bodies will follow. And I think that's become something of the, the new mantra to appreciate how the brain sciences not only can be used, but are being used and potentially could be used in more expansive ways 
within various initiatives and agendas of warfare, intelligence, and national security. So let's get down to brass tacks. What do you see as the most cutting edge developments in brain science relative to national security, intelligence, and defense operations? Well, you know, if, if you look at the way the brain sciences could be weaponized, you have to go with the more conventional things first. So clearly drugs, bugs, and toxins. But here you can modify drugs and toxins utilizing gene editing and synthetic biological techniques as you can modify drugs utilizing synthetic biological techniques. And you can utilize some state-of-the-art nano-engineering approaches to get said drugs into people at very low concentrations and do so in a way that is relatively clandestine, if not covert. But then you also have devices. And increasingly what we're seeing is a reliance upon these devices in two primary domains. Number one, to essentially buff up your own people to create, if you will, super solars, super sailors, metamarines, and augmented airmen, but also in intelligence to be able to provide a working interaction between humans and computational systems that are vital to be able to extract and affect human intelligence, signal intelligence, communications intelligence, and then, of course, you have the more kinetic things. In other words, it's not just buffing up your own people to improve their performance, their capability, but also to denigrate the performance and capabilities of thought, feeling, and action of your competitors or potential adversaries. And here we're seeing such things, once again, as the use of various drugs, not only on the battlefield, but in close in a personal case here being, for example, Novichok, the agent widely used by Russian operatives, and increasingly the use of various devices. And of course, unless your audience has been living under a rock, you know there's been ongoing discussion and considerable controversy about what's being known as Havana syndrome. In other words, the possibility of various types of technologies, whether it's ultrasonic devices or microwave devices, to be able to affect the brain at a relatively remote distance. And this is not science fiction. This is state of the art. This is where we are. Why is this any different than mustard gas from 110 years ago? Because it's not a weapon of mass destruction. Rather, these are weapons of precise disruption that are best when utilized in close against high value targets or, or targets that render some relatively high value rippling effects by means of disrupting an individual or groups of individuals across a variety of scales, from literally the cellular all the way to the social, from the personal all the way to the political. And what that allows is not just a disruptive effect, certainly, but also the capability to incur such a disruptive effect in ways that might be implicit, in ways that are more subtle, in ways that might not first be recognizable. And the disruptive capability is, is huge. I mean, to evoke something of science fiction, you go back to the idea of the invasion of the body snatchers. Why did we find that to be so disturbing? Because you didn't know who was being, quote, controlled or manipulated. We didn't know who was, quote, possessed by whatever it is possesses them. And of course, this then evokes other science fictional memes and tropes, such as Manchurian candidate scenarios. And again, while those are science fictional, there is that interesting gray zone where the ideas that are the stuff of fictional fancy also become, if you will, those things that are tractionable for how science and technology could be translated into the realities of contemporary warfare and intelligence. 
Now, I think you're talking about, for instance, psychopharmaceuticals that could adulterate someone's tea. If I'm having brunch with a warlord, I might be able to change his or her mind and then actions. What happens then? If that warlord is followed by a group of devote followers, what you'll get is some form of charismatic following. In other words, affect the individual and ripple effect and affect their following. Or you could disrupt that. If that particular individual comes out of said meeting and suddenly their their feelings, their communicated thoughts and behaviors are not necessarily consistent with cohesion of the group, you're going to get a, a fractionation of that group. You're going to get a severing of those allegiances and those fidelities. So what you're able to do is you're able to essentially control individuals and the groups that follow them in rather subtle, insidious, but yet very powerful ways. Let me talk about the other powerful way that that a super sailor or metamarine, for instance, could be controlled, and that is, you know, pre-inoculate that sailor or marine to post-traumatic stress or what have you. Is that a reality? It certainly is, Michael. I mean, one of the things that we're working on is a project called NeuroHope, H-O-P-E, where the acronym stands for Health, Operational Protection, and Enhancement. And these are not mutually exclusive. Maintaining the operator's health and doing so by affording the particular operational protections when they are working missionally within theater to make them more resistant, resilient, and in some cases recuperative certainly provides a dynamic interaction. But if we go one step further and we provide those performance capabilizations and optimizations by enhancing key areas of their physiology, of their cognition, of their capabilities, well, then we bring the acronym together. And this certainly represents an ongoing challenge and at the same time opportunity and vector that a number of nations are beginning to concentrate more focally upon, including the United States and its allies, as well as some of our international competitors. Before we get to international treaties, let me ask you to take a few steps more than just one or two steps forward. Let's take 10, 20, or 100 steps. Where is this going? Where is this going to be in 20 or 30 years, which really is the operational life of many of the midshipmen that we're talking to right now? Well, I think that the midshipmen who we're talking to right now need to appreciate that those horizons of capability are multifold. So in the brain sciences, what we look at is the next five years as what we call the horizon of probability. These are the things that are either on the drawing board right now or moving from the drawing board to the battlescape very, very quickly. These are things that are currently considered for operational test eval and use. When you go from the next five years to the next 15 years, that's the horizon of probability and possibility. So these intersection between what is probable now becomes possible thereafter, like anything else. So if I realize the probabilities of today, I open up an increasing set of possibilities beyond. But if we move beyond that 15 to 20 year window, then you get into this vista of potentiality. And this is becomes very, very difficult to predict. I mean, it, it can be modeled to some extent, but there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of variables. It includes such things as the state of the technology, the state of the sociology, the economics, the relative bioeconomy, and also the way groups of individuals consider the use of these techniques or technologies to be relatively normal or acceptable. So I think what we need to appreciate for our audience of midshipmen is that what they're going to see is a field in dynamic transition from now to the next five years, from five years to 10 to 15 years and 15 to 20 years and beyond. 
with tremendous advancements in the science and technology and respective changes in the relative sociology of how these things are being acknowledged, appreciated, adapted, and incorporated into many of the missional domains that they will indeed encounter and need to lead. Fascinating. And we're going to get back to that, especially relative to the ethics of all of this research and application. Let me ask you this last question for this episode, and that is, you know, who's governing or, or overseeing uh, either in the U.S. or internationally? Are there treaties? Are there agreements? Are there understandings relative to this body of work? There are. I mean, in general, we could take a look at, for example, treaties of Helsinki that that dictate and govern the way research is performed. We can examine Geneva conventions that essentially prescribe and proscribe certain conducts within just or justifiable engagements of war. More specifically to these domains, we can take a look at the Biological Toxin Weapons Convention and Chemical Weapons Conventions and various signatory treaties, uh, export treaties, for example. We can also look at the dual-use research of concern, or sometimes referred to as DURC, D-U-R-C. But the problem with all of these is that it needs to appreciate the pace, extent, and possible diversity of uses that research and its translation can afford. So it becomes critical that these treaties, and certainly the individuals who are responsible for developing them, remain at the cutting edge of contemporary science and technology, and do so in a way that is well-informed as to not only what exists currently, but what are the most likely, the most probable manifestations of that science and technology in ways that could be weaponized. And although that only took me about 15 seconds to get out of my mouth, it is not only a work in progress, but a major effort that requires communication, cooperation, and collaboration on a variety of scales. Dr. G, this is clearly a conversational work in progress. There's much more to say here. And I want to come back in the following episode and talk about the ethics, really kind of get deep with you on the ethics of this body of work. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts. 